Amen. Awesome. Like I said before, my name's Ben, pastor here. Um, next week is Advent. Can you believe that? Um, so we're starting Advent next week. We're going to be pausing our series on the first John. Uh, but here's where we're going this Advent season. We're going to be doing a series called God With Us. That's going to be the name of our series. And as we talk about God with us, tracing this, we're going to be tracing this theme of God's presence through Scripture. Starting with the garden, then moving to the temple, then going to Bethlehem, then thinking about the church, and thinking about the new creation. All these places where God meets with his people. It's a beautiful theme, and there's a lot of reason to worship as we go through that. <clears throat> the other thing I have for you, uh, during the Advent season this year, a friend of mine, Michael Lang, he's the pastor in a church in Lewiston, Maine, he wrote a devotional, a daily devotional through the Advent series, uh, season, Advent season, and he gave it to us uh, to have for free. And so the PDF for that devotional is on the homepage of our website. It's called For Christ We Wait. And I would really encourage you to read that, use that to keep your mind fixed on Christ as we move towards celebrating his birth. Um, and if not that, I encourage you to find another devotional, something to keep your mind and your heart fixed on Christ this Advent season as we as we celebrate his birth. But today, 1 John, one more time before we pause for Advent. And this is the perfect place for us to pause. When you think about it like this, during the Advent season, it's the time when we remember that love came down. But this passage, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, is the passage where we learn that God is love. It's the perfect place to stop. Perfect place to prepare our hearts to, to think about the coming of the Son of God. And though love has been a central theme in the book of 1 John so far, John lays it on thick here. And when I say thick, I mean thick. Okay, 27 times in 15 verses, John uses the word love. That's almost two times per verse in this passage. It is a lot. And he's repeating himself nearly verbatim sometimes, some of the things he's already said. And he does that for a reason. I mean, one of the great frustrations that every parent feels um, is that they feel like they have to tell their kids the same thing over and over and over and over uh, throughout the years. And we have this unspoken belief as parents, don't we, that once should be enough, that if we tell them once that should stick, we're not going to have to say it again. We, we like the idea of that until we realize all of a sudden that's not how it happened for us that we had to be told things over and over and over again before we actually started to believe it, or we had to disbelieve our parents, fall on our faces before we started to believe it. But when we come to the book of 1 John here, and he comes back once again to this picture of love, he's using repetition, telling us over and over and over, saying it in different ways to help our understanding grow. Our understanding has to be built over time with repetition. And so what he's doing here, we can think of it like this. John is holding up a massive diamond, a massive diamond called God's love. And he's described it, we've looked at it, and we've watched it sparkle, right? And as he talks about love again, building upon it, talking about another element of God's love, what he's doing is rotating the diamond, helping us look at the same truth from a different angle, helping us see through the different facets that as the light hits it, it just sparkles all the more. What we're doing this morning is investigating and, and meditating upon the love of God. 
And I mean, can, can you think of a more worthy use of our time than just to meditate upon God's love and to consider what that means, what that looks like, just to watch it sparkle for us so that we can say, wow, God, you're amazing. If that sounds just merely like an intellectual exercise, I promise you it's, it's not. Thinking about our God, it, it affects our worship because what we think about our God shapes what we love about him. It's also it's not just an intellectual exercise because it, it profoundly affects our lives. Because what we believe about our God shapes how we live in light of our God. And this is true. We know this, like this is something A.W. Tozer talks about. He says what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because if you think about it, people's right beliefs about God lead them to do things like lay down their lives for people. While people's wrong beliefs about God cause them to do other things like take other people's lives. We need to believe the right thing about God, not just so that we can worship him rightly, but so that we can live for him rightly. And nothing shapes our lives and our worship more than what we believe about our God. And so, like I said, to this point, we've seen a lot about love in this book, but mostly focusing on what God has done, right, to this point. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. But now we see that love is not only what God has done, but who God is. Because in this passage, we learn that God is love. And you know what? Maybe we can't explain that, but we like it, right? It's one of those things that we can't wrap our minds around, but our hearts are on board. Um, when we talk about what it means that God is love, what we have to do during the sermon today is we need to bring our heads up to speed with our hearts so that our heads can grasp what that means as much as our hearts are already celebrating it. Because I promise you this, when our heads catch up with our hearts, our hands are going to follow. The love of God doesn't only shape our affections. When we understand it, it shapes our lives. So that's where we're going today. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. It's a lot. We're going to focus on the first two verses, and then we're going to go through the rest after we get those down. But first, we're going to pray. So let's pray together. Hmm. Heavenly Father, thank you that the mystery of who you are blows our minds. And we pray, Lord, that as our minds are blown, that wouldn't cause us to throw up our hands and give up on trying to know you. But rather, it would make us you just whet our appetite to want to dive in further to understand you, the most delightful and glorious and wonderful being in the universe. May that be the result of today. We give this time to you, Lord. Do your work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, there's a book. It's a great book. It's something of a modern classic as far as books on missions go. And it's the book called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's by uh, John Piper. The subtitle of this book is The Supremacy of God in Missions. What's so interesting and so good and so helpful about this book is, that, is what it means by that expression, the supremacy of God in missions. What it's communicating is that Christians do missions not supremely for man's good, supremely for God's good. 
God is the reason why we do missions. He is the supreme mission, the supreme reason why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to the ends of the earth so that he might be praised by all people in all places. And then as a result, man finds joy, right? Let the nations rejoice because they have met the God of the universe. It's a great book, but what I really like about this book is that the opening line of this book lays out the whole idea in just a few words, and it's a good line, so let me, let me give it to you here. This is what he says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. And I'm a sucker for good lines. That's a good line. Um, the opening line lays out the foundation of what the rest of the book is all about, what the rest of the book is built upon. And even if you didn't read it, you get the point. God is worthy of missions. Now, when we come to this passage here, the passage that we're looking at today, it works very similar. It's a great passage, but, you know, very similar to the rest of the book of John. It's very helter-skelter in his reasoning. It's hard uh, to take all of these tough ideas and navigate our way through them. And the good news for us is that the opening line bears all of the ideas packed into one or two sentences. It lays out uh, the idea that we can build upon. So here's the opening line. Verses 7 and 8. Here we go. John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I mean, by the end, we'll see that every idea of this passage is crammed into those few verses. So let me just read it again to make sure we get it. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If, if I'm going to break that up so I can boil it down, this is what you would hear. Beloved, let us love one another. Okay, that's the command. <laughs> that's John's ultimate aim. That's what he's telling us to do. Beloved, let us love one another for, okay, we're going to be given the reason why we should love, for love is from God. He's the source. Or as John says here in a second, God is in himself love. So whoever loves has been born of God, knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God. So let me make sure we're all on the same page here. We should love because love comes from him. And if we are in him, we will love. And if we don't love, well, we're not in him. It's not complicated. And the other thing is, if you've been around for this series, it's not new to you either. This is the same idea we've talked about so many times, especially a couple weeks ago in John chapter 3. This is something that's not hard to wrap our minds around. The one thing that does hang us up, however, is the understanding of that one little expression that we like the most. God is love. What the heck does that mean? It doesn't actually make any sense. Like I said before, we don't get it, we can't explain it, but we like it. And the reason we like it is because even if we can't explain it, our hearts are at least understanding that it's telling us something good and something beautiful about God. It's definitely not a bad thing. But the expression just actually linguistically doesn't make sense. I love my wife, my life loves me, I, I hope. 
Um, but if I were to say that Olivia is love, uh, that doesn't make sense. Olivia is not love. She is lovely, <laughs> but she is not love. Olivia can't be love. She can't be the embodiment of love. She might be a loving person, but she can't be love. Why? Well, listen to what Richard of St. Victor said. He's a, he's a 12th century Scottish theologian. You know, who we read constantly. Um, but this is what he says. He says, One never says that somebody properly possesses love if he, is on, if he only loves himself. For it, uh, for it to be true love, it must go outwards to another. Consequently, there's a plurality of persons, sorry, consequently, where a plurality of persons is lacking, it's impossible for there to be love. He's right. That makes sense. You, you can't love yourself. You can't just send love into the void. That, that doesn't make sense. You, you can't love without there being an object to love any more than you can smell without having something to smell. It's, you, there needs to be a recipient of that love. And though Olivia might be loving by nature, she cannot love or especially be love because Olivia is in herself one person. And the Christians, we, we worship one God. We're a, we're a monotheistic religion, as we might say. We believe in one God. So how can our one God be love? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Same idea. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, in other words, before there was something to love, he would not be love. He's right. God can't be love on his own. If he is love in himself, then he has to be at least two. But of course, our God is not two. The Bible progressively and actually quite clearly reveals that he is three. Our God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Our God is triune, we might say. He is the Trinity, and it's impossible for us to make sense of the idea that our God is love in himself by nature apart from the Trinity. I have one more quote from you. It's from a guy named Michael Reeves. He wrote a book called Delighting in the Trinity. And if I could tell you to read one book outside of the Bible, it might be that one. It's in our thing over here. I think actually Cindy took it. but You, know, you can badger her for it. But this is what he says. It is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a Trinity that you really sense the beauty and overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. At bottom, this God is different. For at bottom, he is not creator, ruler, or even God in some abstract sense. He is the Father, loving and giving life to the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. A God who is in himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love. Having such a God happily changes everything. 
he didn't make this up. And we know that because in John chapter 17, Jesus gives us a picture into eternity past where we get to see God the Father and the God the Son's love for each other. Can I read you this passage? This is what he says. Jesus' words. He says, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Here it is. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Listen to this. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And if all this to this point has bent your mind in knots, this part should blow your mind that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them? That God would share with us the love that he had in himself before the world began? That he would share that with us? That he would give that to us? That he would invite us into that love? God, who is by nature love, the embodiment of love, would let us be a part of that? The thing is, he, he doesn't only embody love in himself. We see in this passage that he doesn't keep his love to himself. He shares his love with us. How? Well, that's what the rest of this passage is about. So I'm going to read verses 9 all the way through to the end, verse, verse 21. And it, it's, it's a lot. It's hard to follow. But here's the reason why it's hard to follow. You'll see it on the other side. It's hard to follow because John is saying two things at once. He's kind of jumping back and forth. I'll read it, and then on the other side, I'll I'll pull them apart so we can see the two things he's saying, okay? Starting in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That just means that by dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins and washed them away. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, that he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Did you see the Trinity there? Spirit, Father, Son. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, sorry, believe that God has, uh, believe the love that God has for us, I'm sorry. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot see, or he has seen, sorry, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's a lot of words. <clears throat> They're beautiful words. Um, from, from what we were I'm sure what you were grasping, a lot of beauty is, is in here. Um, a lot of things you've probably heard before if you've been with us through the series. But like I said, what he's doing, he's making two points at the same time, jumping from one to the other. So let's just do this. Let's just take one at a time, okay? The first message that he's trying to communicate is simply this. God manifested his love to us. Remember how he's loving all? He gave that to us. How did he do that? That even though we've all sinned and none of us deserve the love of God, verse 9 says, God sent his only son into the world anyway so that we might live through him. Jesus died on the cross in our place. He willingly bore the punishment for our sins. That's what he means by propitiation in verse 10. And the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Verse 14, that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 15, that uh, he may have confidence for the day of judgment. Verse 17, he may not fear punishment. Verse 18, how good is that? That's the first message. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message that God loved us when there was nothing in us to love. Though we are all sinful by nature and by choice, though we did nothing to deserve his love, nothing to deserve his forgiveness, he freely gave it anyway, purely by grace, to all those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And how do you do that? How do you come to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? You simply come to him and say, Lord, I have sinned. My sins deserve your judgment. Father, forgive me. You believe, you trust that Jesus died on the cross in your place on the cross to take the punishment that your sins deserve and rose victorious on the third day. And then you turn to him and you say, I commit now to follow you all the days of my life. I turn from my sin to faith in you, making you not just my savior, but my Lord. And when we pray that earnestly to him, we are forgiven. We are made new. We're born again. And some, an eternal spiritual change happens in you. You're not who you used to be. Eternal hope is yours. God abides in you now, verse 15. You have confidence, verse 17. You have no fear of him anymore, verse 18. We share in and are transformed by the love of God. That's the first point here. That's what the first point from these, first, from these last 13 verses. But the second point of these last 13 verses has to do with what comes after that. What comes next once we come to share in and be transformed by the love of God. Here it is. That God freely gave his love to us. Now we must freely give his love to others. God freely gave his love to us. Now we must freely give his love to others. 
Now we see this all over the place in these last 13 verses. Just the beginning, the end, twice in the middle. Verse 7, the very first verse. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, right? Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Last verse, verse 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's the same message over and over all the way through. If God loves you, love other people. Or you might just say what John said a couple weeks ago. John chapter 3, 16 and 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We, we share in and are transformed by the love of God. And now, as transformed people, we need to come to understand more and more that we have been loved in order to love. We have been served in order to be served. We can go through the entire Bible. We can find passages that say that we should forgive as we have been forgiven. Other passages that have that similar construction. That he has laid down his life for us. Therefore, we should lay down our lives for others. Here's the point. We're called to love the same way he did. We're called to share in his love to share his love. Of course it should look the same way. It's the same love flowing through different channels, through different outlets. That's the love we've been called to share with one another, a love that should shape who we are as people and who we are as a church. And of course, this passage it is talking and really focusing upon the church. It's fo- focusing about the relationships inside the church. We know this because it uses words like one another, words like amongst the brothers. That's what's the focus here. Those who are in the body of Christ, those who share that love with the Father and with one another. You know, a couple of weeks back as we had our family meeting after the church, after our service, um, one of the five main areas of focus uh, that you shared that you wanted to see grow in our churches is community, right? The loving community of our church. And amen, right? We want our church to feel like that loving family uh, that we say we are, Christ-centered family. Um, but as, as we close here, what I want to do is I want to connect this passage with that hope. This passage with that desire that our church would be a loving uh, community here. And the first thing that this passage says about that desire, number one, is that it's a costly path to loving community. And number two... That, that, compel, that, the compelling, that there is a compelling beauty to that kind of loving community. So it's a costly path to loving community, and there is a compelling beauty to loving community. So first, here at the end, a costly path to loving community. I really like the way that Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop say this in their book, The Compelling Community. When they talk about the, path, the cost of love, the cost of love specifically in the church. This is what they say. It's not up here. I'll, I'll read it to you. My last quote for the day, I promise. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much we want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. 
how much you're willing to lose for the sake of this person. How much your freedom, of your freedom, you're willing to forsake. How much of your precious time, your emotions, and your resources you're willing to invest in this person. True Christian community comes at the cost of Christ-like sacrificial love. And that's not new to us. We've talked about that quite a bit. I am hammering it because it's so hard to believe. It's so hard to actually embrace. <laughs> to sacrificially give of ourselves to other people goes against everything that's hardwired into us. We want to serve ourselves by nature. But as Christ transforms us continually, as we follow him, it's a lifelong process of him working that out of us, helping us more and more seek to love the other more than we love ourselves. And so first and foremost, if you want to be a loving community as a church, if you want to be a loving person, the first thing you have to do is push into the one who manifested love to you and ask for his help. You cannot love on your own. Go to the one who is love incarnate, Jesus Christ. Ask him to show his love to you. Bask in that love. Abide in that love. And pray that he would help you channel his love on to others. You're not going to white-knuckle love, not for long. So push into Christ. He laid down his life for us that we may, by his help, lay down our lives for others. Hallelujah. The costly path of loving community. That's the first thing. The last thing for you today, the compelling beauty of a loving community. And, and again, I am jumping back to something we talked about before, but this all the way back at the beginning of the book of 1 John. And it's this illustration that's been really profound for me of, of a stained glass window. What is a stained glass window? If not a diverse collection of broken glass <laughs> fused together as one thing, so that when light comes and shines through, it becomes something truly glorious to behold, right? Broken things united, beautiful when light shines through it. And what's the church if not that? What's the church if not a diverse collection of broken people fused together as one? That when the light of Jesus Christ shines through it, we become something truly beautiful to behold. That is the compelling beauty that the world knows nothing about. The church is a community of people who share in and are transformed by the love of God. May our mutual faith in our Lord Jesus Christ root us in and ground us in his love, as Paul says in Ephesians, that we may shine forth his light, his beauty for the world to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess so much of who you are is just completely beyond our ability to comprehend. And God, we wouldn't want it any other way. God, if you were so small that we could wrap our minds around you, I don't know if we'd worship you. But Father, you are a God who transcends our knowledge, transcends our understanding. You are a God who embodies love in yourself. And Father, I'm just, I'm so burdened for my own heart even, just, God, 
Help us truly abide in and find our joy in you and in your love. Help us bask in that first and foremost. And as a result, Lord, may that love shape the way that we love others. Never let us try to do the second without the former. (laughs) We need your help to do it. Thank you, Lord, you didn't call us to love and leave us to do it on your own. So, Father, help us by the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.